1: Hey everyone, it's Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. We'll be back with the country duo Maddie and Tay on September 27th. But in the meantime, I want to reshare one of my favorite episodes from our summer tour series featuring guitar legend Derek Trucks. Hope you enjoy it and we'll see you again soon. Welcome to the summer tour edition of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest today has been called one of the greatest guitarists of all time by Rolling Stone Magazine. And anyone who's heard what he can do on a slide guitar would have to agree. Derek Trucks was a child prodigy who began playing in front of large crowds when he was still in grade school. And by the time he was 19, he was touring with the Allman Brothers. But for the last dozen years, he's been producing some of the best music of his career as a member of the Tedeschi Trucks Band, which he formed with his wife, Susan Tedeschi, in 2010. Today on the show, we talk about his childhood in Jacksonville, Florida, his close relationship with Greg Allman, and the lessons he learned from his parents that helped him survive the music industry. He also talks about the Tedeschi Trucks Band's epic new project, I Am the Moon, and why it means so much to his band and his family. All that and more on a very special Biscuits and Jam. Derek
0: Trucks, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Yeah, man. Good to be here. Good to be here. Where am I reaching you right now? I'm actually in our studio in Jacksonville, Florida, behind our house. So we're in the swamp, right on the edge of alligators and manatees and whatever else is (laughs) roaming out there. (laughs) <laughs> well, it must be nice to be home in Jacksonville It is Once the world started opening up, we've been running hard We were a good 20 months without a gig So when they cracked the window, we <laughs> we hopped on the bus and we've been plowing But it's good to have a little break Because the summer tour is going to be pretty intense So yeah, this is deep breath time <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, so this is your hometown I mean, you grew up in Jacksonville, right?
0: Yep Born and raised. Born in St. Augustine, but it's the area, so right up the road. Right. Well, so I'm wondering if you can take
1: me back to maybe a time before you played the guitar when you were just a
0: kid. Tell me a little bit about the house and the neighborhood where you grew up. I grew up in a lower middle class house here in in Jacksonville, and my dad, he was a roofer at the time, and my mom was working up at the elementary school, and it was very week-to-week, (laughs) month-to-month. (laughs) <laughs> Lights were cut off once or twice, but it, it, we always had a good time. It's always good music around and the energy was good. So, Well, so, Derek, who was the cook in your family growing up? It was my mom. My dad was usually pretty spent by the time he got home. But, you know, we we were one of those families that it was you know monday night was spaghetti night tuesday night was some hamburger helper <laughs> and there was the steak over rice night we we weren't so <laughs> down with that it was the cream of mushroom part that we didn't like <laughs> but she's still a good cook and there's some food from your childhood that it's still better than anything you've ever had just simple food
1: Right. It just there's something uh <laughs> nostalgic about it. Maybe it tastes better
0: than it actually is for some reason. That's probably true. That now the family reunions were pretty incredible though, the, the trucks family reunions, because most of the trucks are from Alabama, but when you get that huge crew together, the southern cooking was pretty incredible. <laughs>
1: yeah, tell me about that. What were those family gatherings like? I mean, were these kind of holiday celebrations or more just family reunions?
0: It was usually a reunion based around somebody turning 70, 80, 90, <laughs> even 100. Were, the truck side lived a long time. I love those gatherings because, especially as a young kid, when you see four or five people sitting in a row that are all 80 or 90 years old plus, there's some Jedi council vibe to it. <laughs> like, what do they know? <laughs> and
1: I've got to imagine there was a good amount of music at these
0: gatherings. You know, it's funny. The musical side of the family was maybe a little bit more of the black sheep side of the family. I mean, my uncle being in the Almond Brothers and there were a few other musicians in the family, as time went on, that became more of the conversation. But in the early years, it was almost like, uh, yeah, I don't know what they're up to. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely up to no good. Yeah. And they they weren't wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you about your uncle, Butch Trucks, who was... A drummer, and he was one of the founding members of the Almond Brothers. Did you have a
0: close relationship with him? Yeah, I mean, we were on the road for fifteen years together in the Almond Brothers, and then I played in a few bands with him leading into that for longer. So, yeah, we had a, a long, close, sometimes intense relationship. But I learned a lot from Uncle Butch. He was an incredible force, incredible musician, and uh, in a lot of ways, I think his his reverence for that music and his intensity and just the way he felt about Dwayne Allman in those early days, That's I think that's what carried a lot of the integrity of, of that sound and that band. No one could play like him. I mean, you obviously mm-hmm. had to have Greg's voice over there to make it legit, but Butch's sound was a piece of that puzzle and equation.
1: Did your parents support your interest in guitar kind of from the beginning, or did you have to kind of get them on board? I mean, they,
0: they were supportive. It was a little bit reluctant because of what they had seen and been around. I mean, they were, my dad was at the Fillmore. He saw Hendrix. He knew what that lifestyle could and did to people. And so when I was nine years old and wanting to play that music and sitting in with local bands in Jacksonville, my parents knew who these people were. <laughs> like they, There was no mystery from their end. There was from mine, but they supported it. I mean, I think they realized that if you're an athlete and you have talent at a young age, there's an obvious track do what you want to do. And if you play music, going to music school for the things that I was doing wasn't necessarily the call. I mean, it was the way you learn that music is by being around the veterans and the greats. And my dad was on the road with me until I was 17. So he was there to kind of shield. He didn't shield everything. He wanted to make sure I knew where the bodies were buried or I knew what was what, (laughs) but enough where I was able to get through it relatively unscathed. It's a wild scene. It's a wild world. And it's, I think it's, quite a bit different now that these were still the days before one company owned every venue in the <laughs> in the country. And I think it's tougher for musicians now to really glimpse at the source and maybe what it was really about back in the day. I feel lucky that I got to see a lot of these guys and these play with these grizzled veterans in my formative years. Yeah. Well, you've
1: had a pretty stable career as a musician, which is not exactly common among rock stars. And uh, what are some of the things that your parents taught you that have kind of helped you survive in this crazy business?
0: There was definitely a lot of lessons in humility early on. That was the one thing that my parents would not let slide. I remember times even being 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that age where I remember my dad kind of hit me on my shoulder and said, you're kind of walking a little different. <laughs> like like it was some arrogance, the way I was walking, and I, was, uh, it really hurt my feelings. But then I was like, you know what? He maybe he's right. <laughs> so they were always there to keep me in check, and you always have to recheck in. You know, you're never fully out of the clear with anything, right? <laughs> no, no,
1: definitely not. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had a pretty extraordinary childhood. I mean, you were playing in front of huge crowds by the time you were. 10 or 11 years old? Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think that's about right. I remember the first real big show was playing with this band here in Jacksonville. It was Ace Moreland and the West Side Story. And Ace was on Ichiban Records, which was like a offshoot of Alligator it was a blues label. And I, I remember hopping into Winnebago with them and going up to the Toronto Jazz and Blues Festival. I think I was nine years old. And that felt like going to Mars. I don't think I left <laughs> the city limits at that point. <laughs> well, there must have been
1: a moment where you were on that stage, and you kind of realized the power of that guitar and the effect that it was having on
0: an audience. I mean, what was that like for you as a kid? I'm not sure how aware of all that i was in the early early days i knew how it affected my parents because when when music really hit them they would get chills there would be tears like that was always a thing you were striving for it wasn't necessarily crowd response it was like getting to that point because when my dad would talk about seeing the Almond brothers in the early days or even bb or whatever those are the things he talked about like just those moments those little musical epiphanies that you have so i remember that being thinking about those things but it wasn't until I met Colonel Bruce Hampton years later, maybe 13, 14 years old, 12, somewhere in there, just hanging with him, you realize if you're going to do this, it's not just a hobby. There's other ways to think about it, and there's a depth to it, and and it's a powerful thing. And Colonel was definitely a pivot for me, and just the way I looked at everything. I, he I mean, he saved a lot of musicians that way. But who knows what would have happened if I hadn't run into somebody like that? Cause I, I mean, I was just a kid up until that point, And then you start thinking of things in a totally different light. And I think a lot of people that went through kernel were able to kind of hold on to the thing that makes it great and not lose it and not, it doesn't become just a career or a, or a job or some way to get over on people. You try to stay connected to the source and what it's about. And I feel lucky I ran into the right people at the right time.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you about Dwayne Allman who was someone that you never met. I mean, he died famously in a motorcycle accident, but he was famous for his slide guitar. And I've heard you say that he was a major influence on you. When did you really
0: kind of discover his music or really connect with his music? You know, I'm I'm not sure if I can remember a time when that music wasn't around. I mean, it was really the soundtrack that I remember growing up to. I, mean, I remember crawling on the floor in our living room and that Layla record that's leaning up against the peach crate so they would keep them in. I mean, those were earliest memories. It was those records. My mom had a few Joni Mitchell records and Carol King records, and there were a few bb and Elmore records. And so when I first got a guitar at maybe nine years old, at that point, I was actively listening to Eat a Peach. And those are things I would ask my parents to put on, and it meant something to me. And when I first started playing, that's the sound I wanted to try to hear and create and you pick up an acoustic guitar and you're like this doesn't sound anything like that (laughs) 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 and then i remember one of my dad's friends he would come give me lessons and he brought over a slide once and and then it's like well this is more like it this is starting to make a little more sense and then when i got my first electric guitar from a pawn shop and then this tiny little amp the first time i realized you could distort an amplifier that was like a that was a pretty big moment. <laughs> like, holy cow, this is, that's the thing. It, you know, but you felt like you'd really discovered something that no one else had ever found. So that, those were, uh those were fun days.
1: So you really started with the slide. I mean, that was kind of from your earliest days on the guitar. That's how you got
0: going. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the sound I was wanting to hear. And I was a pretty small nine-year-old too. Like I didn't have, large hands yet. <laughs> so like I could I could definitely get across what I was hearing much easier with a slide. You know, those pawn shop guitars when the action's an inch and a half high, they're hard to fret. <laughs> that thing was right. It was not a good guitar. <laughs> it was not nice. <laughs> so,
1: Derek, I want to turn to Tedeschi Trucks. You've been part of Tedeschi Trucks since 2010, I believe. Tell me a little bit about meeting Susan. And the first few times that y'all played music together.
0: Well, when we met, she was opening for the Almond Brothers at the Sanger Theater in New Orleans. She was doing a whole tour. I had just joined the band. I'd been in the band maybe a month or two. I remember showing up to sound check and seeing and hearing her and just not being able to like put the two things together. <laughs> and, you know, we started chatting and hanging out and we were on the road for a while. Her band at the time was Double Trouble. Stevie Ray's old band, I think they knew the almonds and Greg from back in the day, and they were not letting Susan come hang out on our bus. It was just like you were not you cannot go over there <laughs> they were like Look. it's dangerous over there <laughs> yeah and so, so it was just it was a no go, and so they finally allowed me to come hang out and ride with them occasionally so I could court her a little bit <laughs> but they were they were good big brothers, I got to say, I, looking
1: back well, it seems to have worked out fine in the end, so the first song that I ever heard y'all play was a song called Midnight in Harlem. And it's a beautiful song, and it's become one of the ones you're known for. And I think people love to hear it every time they see y'all play. And But I'm wondering if you wrote that song with Susan in mind, because it, it kind of sounds like it's
0: made for her voice. It's funny, because Mike wrote the bulk of that tune maybe a few years before we put this band together. We even attempted it with my solo band. And it just, it wasn't the right time. And it just didn't quite feel right yet. And when he brought it back up early days of this band being together, I was just messing with this looping guitar pattern and open E and it fit perfectly over his tune. And then all of a sudden the thing just made perfect sense. And then when Susan started singing it, it was over. I remember the first time we played that in this studio that I'm sitting in when Kofi hopped into that B3 riff in the intro and i'd have chills thinking about it because it was just one of those moments where you're like well that's not going anywhere (laughs) whatever you just played that's going to be there forever you know some moments happen in the studio where you just realize that a a thing occurred (laughs) something just went down but uh yeah that that was a song that when we first played it with this group it was pretty instant we knew there wasn't a lot of pushing and pulling
1: it's a special song. It's kind of a magical song, and I've seen y'all play it a, a bunch of times, and it never gets
0: old. Yeah, that that one never gets old to play. I mean, we intentionally don't play it every night because I don't want it to get to that point ever. We save it, you know. One of the things I've learned from being on the road with bands like the Almond Brothers or groups that have been around a while is... If you wear a song out it's hard to unwear it out <laughs> like it didn't make sense to me there were songs greg just didn't want to play they were like come on it's incredible like we want to play it and you just tell he's just like uh, it's, at some point he had played it too much <laughs> so we're we're really conscious of trying to uh you got to let the fields rest sometimes you can't overplant <laughs> these things <laughs> so midnight in harlem's one that I, I hope we never get to that point because it's always when it starts and when everything kicks in it always feels really good I came to the city. I was running from the my heart was bleeding and it hurt my voice to lay.
1: So you were talking about the almonds, and you know, you played with them for fifteen years, and I've heard You say that you had a particularly close relationship with Greg, who died of cancer back in 2017. I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. What was it like playing with him, especially when you were just getting started? I mean, you know, he he had been with the Almonds for, I I don't know, 30 years by the time you started playing. Was he encouraging when
0: you came along, or, or was he kind of tough to get to know? I mean, he was certainly tough to get to know, but he was encouraging, too. I mean, I played in his solo band for a little bit when I was early teens, 14 or 15. So he was always really sweet. I remember the first time, I think the first time I met him was down in South Florida. They had just gotten back together. The band reunited in 1989, and they were making, I think it was Seven Turns was the record they made down in South Florida with Tom Dowd and all those guys. And the band I was playing with, it was Ace Moreland again a great blues singer, guitar player. But we were playing this club on South Beach in Miami called Tropics International. And the the stage was up and behind the bar. Like the bar surrounded the stage. It was just a total, uh, children probably should not have been there either. <laughs> there was a pool in the back. It was just mayhem. But they took a break from their session or had the night off. And my uncle came down to sit in, Warren Haynes and Alan Woody and Greg, I think were the four that showed up to play and, I mean, for me, it was like meeting almost mythical characters. I mean, I, I knew my uncle a little bit, but I didn't see him a ton at that point. He would come into town for Christmas occasionally or something. But even then, it was like, oh, this is the guy from that band. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but meeting Greg that first time was really incredible. And uh, Red Dog, one of uh, the legendary roadies of rock and roll lore, he was there. And he gave me one of Dwayne Allman's chorus Eden bottles. And, I, like, that night is pretty heavily seared into my head. Greg and Red Dog gave it to me by that weird pool behind the club. (laughs) It's just one of those wild moments in your life. And then I remember being at my grandparents' house, and they had a picture of that moment, that sit-in with me and Butch and Greg and Alan and Warren. And they had uh, a piece of paper covering up the liquor bottles (laughs) under my feet (laughs) like that was their their friends didn't want to see that that was not okay but I I always remember loving seeing that the blue strip of paper (laughs) taped onto the picture frame but Greg was incredible you know and I actually remember the moment I remember when we found out he passed away we were we're starting our tour this year at Daly's place here in Jacksonville and we we played the first ever show there and as we were pulling the bus into the parking lot, I got a call from uh, Bert Holman, the Almond Brothers manager, and I knew immediately what it was. Just it was, you could feel it coming. And, you know, we heard that Greg passed away as we were walking into that venue and, you know, in Jacksonville, their hometown. And it was a big deal that venue opening up. And I remember walking in and, and I was like, yeah, I, I'm going to need a few minutes. <laughs> like, I, I can't do this right this second. Just need five. I had to go. Sit in the dress room, and I, I remember listening to "Ain't Wasting Time No More" because his vocal track is just incredible. <laughs> just <laughs> had a moment, just kind of got it out for a second. I was like, "All right, now we can we can face the day." <laughs> but yeah, he was he was something, man. He was he was really something. The other thing I really remember, this is more about what he meant to people than it is about him or knowing him. This was when we were at his funeral in Macon. We were sitting in the room and I was there with my parents and Otis Redding's widow and daughter are there and Jimmy Carter's there and Cher is there. And you just feel this this convergence of old Georgia and old, you know, the music, all of this stuff. And I'm sitting with my parents and they were like, yeah, this is where we were here for Dwayne's funeral. This is the same spot. And we hopped in the car in the funeral procession heading to Rose Hill Cemetery where Dwayne and, and Barry are buried. And there were people lining the road for that whole mile and a half. There must have been 10, 15,000 people, people with tents, music playing. It was a really incredible moment. And it felt, it just felt like this moment being from the South that there was, it was like, you know what, this is something we're proud of. And this is the end of an era. You know, even though a few of the members are still left, when Greg went, it really felt like, it was, I don't know, it felt like I was reading a, a Faulkner book or something. Like it felt important and it felt it felt tragic, and but beautiful, and it was really a wild time. But yeah, that was a wild day, and it, it, it hit me, because I knew what that music meant to me, and I saw what it meant to people, but uh, the way people came out to, to watch the car drive by was, you know, you see that was like Muhammad Ali or President's, or <laughs> you, don't, you don't see that for musicians a lot. It's, uh, it's, it's more than just, I like this song at that point. There's something more going on. Mm.
1: It was a celebration of it his was. life.
0: It really was. Yeah. And an appreciation of, of what those guys did. And I mean, they came from nothing, man. You read the, the story of their beginning and how strong their mom was. Mama A, we knew her really well. And she was incredible right to the end. I mean, she was driving around in her red Cadillac when she was 94 <laughs> years old. She was a tough one. Living in that same house that those two hell on wheels children grew up in, <laughs> she was something else. A true Southern lady. That's for sure. I'll be back with more
1: from guitar legend Derek Trucks after the break. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Derek Trucks. Well, Derek, I want to ask you about this project called I Am the Moon, and it's crazy ambitious. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's actually four albums, and everyone has a corresponding film that goes with it. And the first album has just come out, and it's called Crescent, and it's magnificent. Beautiful. Tell me what set this project in motion.
0: I mean, the last few years that we went through, I mean, we had 20 months of there's no gigs, you know nothing going on, and you know the whole world's kind of just trapped in this weird moment where there's not much end in sight there's It's hard to plan anything, you just don't know what's going to happen and Early in that, Mike Madison, who wrote Midnight in Harlem, is an incredible writer uh, but incredible thinker, and he had this idea of a way to keep the band kind of at least thinking about the same thing or just staying on track without being able to gig or do what we do and we did this live show with Trey Anastasia from Fish. We did the Layla record, and then it became a live record. so we had just dug into that lyrically and musically and and Mike had read all the lyrics and dug into that album as a writer and he was thinking about it and he he was like, you know, it's one of the all-time records. If there's anything that hit me a little off about it, was it's just it's one perspective from top to bottom. Like, it's just, I want something I can't have. And he was like, what if we thought about this from her perspective? What did Layla think about all of this? And then he had the notion of, he went and reread the Layla Majnun, the Nazimi poem. And then he proposed that everybody in the core of the band would read that poem while we were apart and just think about that story from different perspectives so when we were finally able to get people tested early on and down here living in the studio with us for a few weeks all these songs started pouring out so the first five or six songs were written and then the thing kind of takes on a gravity of its own you start writing to the project and everyone's getting excited about it and then when we finally looked back we had 24 songs and then we were really trying to figure out like what do you do with this and we we'd go upstairs and listen in the studio there's a nice listening room and we realized like this is too much for one sitting like we got to think about do we save one for next year like how do we do this at that point we had been doing this weekly thing where we were putting up a live concert on our website and people would tune in together eight o'clock people were get together from their homes and watch and became this communal thing. And so that kind of sparked the idea of, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we try to put visuals to this? And this was all when we had nothing going on. We thought these would be easy things to do. <laughs> so we didn't realize what we were taking on. And then our good friend, Judd Strickland, he took on the project of sequencing this thing because it was a really important part of it. Judd and his son, Bradley, they took all these tunes and each song, he had a card for with the time signature and the key signature and the emotional content of it and where it fits in the story and went full murder board on it, conspiracy theory yarn. <laughs> <laughs> when these sequences came back and we were listening, we were like, that is a, it's a real important part of the project, especially if you're going to put a film to it. There needs to be an emotional narrative and a musical narrative. So that was a, a big part of the equation as well. Well, I want to ask you about Layla, because that's a song that
1: you've been playing since you were really young. It's by a band, Derek and the Dominoes. Were you kind of named after that band?
0: Yeah, that was definitely a factor. The spelling certainly came from that band. <laughs> I mean, that that record was in heavy rotation in my house growing up. I mean, that album cover is one of the first images I can remember. Like It's just such a striking image. And I remember strangely playing that song early on, 14 or 15 years old, and then when I got the call and joined Clapton's band and getting to play that music with him felt completely surreal. But my parents came over to London when I was doing the Albert Hall shows with Clapton's band. And he invited us out to his place in the country that he lived with, Patty at the time, and or way before. But this is like Layla land. <laughs> and seeing that painting and just, just being kind of overwhelmed by it just felt like a weird A weird, (laughs) surreal moment in your life. (laughs) Your dad, the roofer, sipping tea with Eric is not something you expect when you're growing up on Mente Street in Jacksonville.
1: (laughs) I mean, this whole project just had so many layers for you. I want to ask you about the title track, I Am the Moon, which is beautiful. It starts off with this kind of melancholy sort of acoustic guitar And then it kind of builds and builds into something that sounds almost triumphant. How did that song
0: come together and how did that sort of become the title track? That was a song that Gabe Dixon wrote when we first jumped into this project. And he, I think this was even before we were all together, but he sent down this demo of him singing and playing this tune and everyone immediately knew how incredible of a song it was. And I mean, Susan walked around almost that whole lockdown with an acoustic guitar playing and singing that thing. She was in love with it. And so that one was almost intimidating to record because the demo was so good and it, the idea was so good. And you just wanted to make sure you didn't miss the mark. And that was the song for me where I realized that idea and concept that Mike had was now a living, breathing thing. I remember hearing that song and his lyrics and just the feeling of it and it put me in that place that I was when I was reading the poem. It really felt of a place. His voice and her voice together are pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing thing we've stumbled across. And when you're talking about like the Layla Majnun story, it's it's really nice having the two, the male and female voice telling this story. The whole perspective shifts when you're hearing it from two different places there's characters everywhere which i really really love because one of the things that i know from being around this 12-piece band is they are full-on characters so i love <laughs> i love when i hear the record like i real, i see and feel these people and and i thought alex who did the movie did an incredible job at bringing that in where you you feel like you know these people a little bit and it's and what you see is pretty much what you get <laughs> I-
1: I want to ask you about one more that's called Fall In. And it's totally different. And it's kind of a feel good song. And it sounds like y'all were having a really good time when you recorded it. But it's also a very different sound for Tedeschi trucks. Did this
0: one feel like a shift in direction for you guys? Maybe so. I, I think this whole project felt like a bit of a shift because we weren't gigging, and you didn't know if there was going to be a gig in a year or two years or never. <laughs> like it was a different mentality, so we didn't feel like when we were writing songs and recording songs that we had to think about how is this going to sound live. Like we, there was no sense of that really. We're all living together in the studio, and you know the sounds get a little bit experimental, and you start leaning into that. And then you start thinking about the lyric of the tune and it's an uplifting feeling song, but the lyrics, maybe a little bit dark, you know, it's like right. it's willing to follow somebody anywhere, even if it's straight to hell <laughs> and it's, and you, you could feel the horn section, just like, all right, let's fall in. <laughs> and you just, you, you see this scene and, and I think the sounds make you play that way. The feeling makes you play that way. It was funny when we recorded that tune specifically, we would start the tune, and it took a while to get into that groove. Like it, we did about two or three takes, and by the end of the take, once we got into that vamp at the end, it was just simmering. It just, you're like, all right, that's it, we got it. And then we start the song, and it would take a minute to get back into it. So I had this idea. I was like, all right, we're gonna play the song, and we get to the end, and it's simmering. We're just gonna, we're not stopping. We're just gonna start again. <laughs> so we recorded the song three times in a row where we never stopped. Because the song ends where it begins. It's the same groove. And so there's one take that we have that is three versions pinned together. And they felt really good, but the one in the middle was the one. It was just it, it never left that feeling. It's fun when you're in the studio experimenting with things like that of if it finally feels good, maybe that's where we should start. <laughs> we don't like we, we don't have to build into this thing.
1: You know, you've talked a good bit about Mike Madison, who's a longtime partner of yours. And he's got this very soulful, bluesy voice. And it seems like your guitar is emulating that sometimes. And and you also do it with Susan. Do you see your guitar as a way of communicating with them and you're responding to them?
0: Completely. I mean, and, and some of that goes back to, you know, some of the earliest delta blues recordings where you hear book of white sing and then play a line back to himself like the the slide guitar was emulating the human voice almost the female voice you know you hear it with blind Willie and a lot of the delta guys it's kind of call and response with with yourself and since i don't sing it's me call calling response with mike or susan and some of the stuff they sing is just it makes you want to play it it makes you uh maybe they're like stop doing that Quit. why are you copying me? <laughs> So Derek, you and Susan have
1: two kids, and there's an awful lot of music in those genes. Are either of them getting
0: into the family business? I don't think so. I mean, they have incredible taste in music, and they're they're music lovers. And but they they took different paths so far. It's funny. I think today is our third day as empty nesters. The very day <laughs> we got home after moving our daughter, and the the first crescent came out, it was a weird mix of emotions that day.
1: (laughs) Well, that whole project must feel a little bit like giving birth in a way y'all been working on it for so long and it just came out a few days ago. I think I saw you say on Instagram that y'all had a big gathering and you had your parents over to listen to it and watch it with you. What was their response?
0: Man, it was really, really fun watching because we I mean, we've obviously seen it every step of the way, but until you sit down and watch it finished with people that haven't seen it, you're really unsure of how it's going to land. And I remember Susan being pretty incredibly nervous right before it started. Like we were about (laughs) to go on stage. You're like, it's already done. (laughs) There's nothing we could do now, but it felt really good. And then the next morning, I got a call from my dad, and he was really excited about how it was great last. I really loved the instrumental. (laughs) I've been thinking about that all morning. (laughs) I was like, all right, this is good. I I feel better about the day already. Because Chris Trucks, he's amazing. If he doesn't like something, he will not blow smoke. (laughs) So it was was nice. I I appreciated that. I felt better about it. You got over that hurdle. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big one.
1: Well, Derek, I just have one more question for you. You grew up in the South. You've played just about everywhere there is to play in the
0: South. What does it mean to you to be a Southerner? Man, I feel lucky. I just feel like there's something in the water. There's something that happens down here that's just different than anywhere else. It sounds and feels different. It smells different. The food, the culture, just the leading with politeness, I appreciate. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I know it's not always 100% pure and true everywhere you go, but it sure is a nice start, you know? I mean, we travel all over the world and there's places you go where you get that familiar sense. You're like, I like it here. It feels like the sound. <laughs> it's just, I don't know how you put your finger on it, man. I mean, I appreciate the feeling when I'm here, and I, I certainly appreciate the sounds and the things that we were given right out of the gate. You know, I think a, a lot of what comes in my playing and what I do is just the thing that was here, you know. It's just tapping into the thing that was here. And I remember even being on tour with with Clapton or a lot of other artists, there's almost this mythical thing that they have about artists from the South because that's what they were all after for a very long time. I mean, that's where the blues came from. That's where a lot of the soul came from. And when you hear Otis Redding or Greg Almond sing, you you know where they were from. <laughs> and you know where they weren't from. So those are the things that I cherish. I mean, I feel like I remember doing these tours in Europe and this was during, I think it was Bush 2 and there was, there was a big anti-us sentiment a lot of the places you're playing these festivals and i remember doing interviews and being asked about it i was like you know who my ambassador is it's bb king (laughs) that's my ambassador (laughs) i was like this is a blues festival by the way that we're playing (laughs) you know where that came from right (laughs) those are things that i feel like you can always hold on to there's a beauty to that stuff that is just i think pretty bulletproof man that's timeless stuff and a, a real gift to the to the planet
1: Well, I hope y'all can enjoy a little time at home before you get out on the road. But we're very excited about your new music and hope I get to see you guys soon.
0: Yeah, man. We'll be out there and I appreciate you, man. We look forward to connecting sometime.
1: Well, Derek Trucks, thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. All right, man. Be well. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Derek Trucks. Make sure to check out the Tedeschi Trucks Band's latest project, I Am the Moon, And visit TedeschiTrucksBand.com for tour dates, social media, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits & Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at SouthernLiving.com slash Biscuits & Jam. And make sure to come back for my conversation with Alton Brown.